so it was only then when I looked into it that it was like, yeah, see, I never really thought about it, but digital circuitry is unbelievably redundant. Uh, the whole idea of a digital circuit is instead of carrying an electrical voltage, which might have, you know, a thousand different detectable values, we use an entire wire to hold one bit. And we put amplifiers all over the place. So even if that bit drops a little bit from one or a little bit up from zero, we cram it back to one and zero all the time. So digital hardware is, in fact, this unbelievable act of redundancy uh, to make the, the perfect little world of software that we live in possible. I'm Nathan Tubes, and this is the Functionally Imperative Podcast. Today's guest is Dave Ackley. He's the creator of the T2 Tile Project and an advocate for robust first and best effort computing. He's a retired college professor from the University of New Mexico, and I've been a big fan of his for a long time. We had a great conversation today, and I hope you enjoy it. Cool. Um, well, Dave, it's a delight to have you on. Um, you're the first guest on this podcast. Uh, this is going to be uh, <laughs> fun. I think we're going to have a we'll have some good questions, but I hope to just take the conversation where it takes us. Well, that's great. I uh, I haven't been on that many podcasts. Uh, I've been on a couple, but it's been a while. So thank you for the Absolutely. invitation. So um, I guess to start, I've been following uh, mostly the T2 Tile project for the last few years, um, which kind of brought me down a rabbit hole of robust first and best effort computing. Uh, and it's been, the more I've been doing research for this podcast, uh, it's just been fascinating to see uh, how this has evolved over the years. And I was just really curious for the uninitiated. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the T2 Tile project? Sure. Uh, it's always a question of how long an answer uh, do we want, since my answers always have to begin with, in the beginning, the universe was created, and then go from there. Uh, uh, so, you know, in this particular case, I'm a computer scientist. I discovered computers in high school. I loved them. They were so much fun. You could make them do things on their own. And I went to undergrad and grad school for computers. I became a computer professor, computer science professor. And all the time, I was always trying to make computers do something by themselves, do something new by themselves, because that was cool. And I, it always had to be something new, uh, which gets harder and harder the more times you spent making these things. And you start seeing the limitations of the tool. And one of the limitations that eventually became overwhelmingly in my mind was the fact that computers are so rigid. This exact step-by-step, -step, do everything perfectly, no matter what, is the absolute essence of digital computing. And I was really getting tired of it, especially because I had spent about a decade in the late 90s and early O's uh, working in computer security, and computer security is such an unbelievable disaster, and it still is today. It's it's just getting worse. Uh, um, and when I, you know, I was always trying to write academic papers, explaining new defense techniques and various ideas how we could make it better, but it felt like pissing in the wind. It felt so hopeless, uh, and I tried to understand what is the real problem, what is the essential problem with computer security. And where I came down on, the essential problem was this whole idea of being completely rigid and doing every single step in order absolutely perfectly. Now, why is that such a problem? It's a very natural idea. We think about doing step-by-step -step in our heads. The reason it's so terrible is because if you have a guarantee, if hardware gives you a guarantee that everything is going to unfold exactly like you say, then you never have to worry about errors. You never have to stop and think, what happens if the if statement says I should do the then and I do the else by mistake uh, like that? And as a result, we make software, computer software, that's incredibly fragile. It's completely unready to handle any uh, unexpected situation, whether that's you know a cosmic ray flipping a bit in RAM or a slightly outdated library that happened to get dynamically loaded. You name it, whatever it is. So that's what drove me towards this idea of maybe we should swallow the, the bitter pill. Maybe, you know, we started with hardware being deterministic, absolutely guaranteed step-by-step. Step. Maybe we have to give up on that. And if we do give up on that, what does that mean? And, you know, when we're growing up in deterministic execution, when we're growing up in traditional computation, 
and we think about, uh, you know, but what if the step goes wrong? What if the next step is not what we expect? It's like, give up. It's like, shoot yourself. How could you possibly compute anything if you don't have that? So that's what led me to start studying robust first, where you say, suppose we had a computational model where it's more important to stay on your feet and do something vaguely sensible than it is to be exactly correct. Uh, you know, you try to sort the numbers and if they're not quite right, well, they're close. And what if you tried to build a whole computational model around, suppose you were robust first, no matter what, and then as correct as possible. You know, you, it's not like you want to be sloppy. It's just that being correct is not the most important thing. Being robust, being able to do something sensibly, you know, stay in the area, that's what's most important. And then finally, as efficient as necessary. That efficiency is the evil in my story because efficiency always means taking out redundancy, taking out checks, taking out extra checks. And in our society, at least in Western society, we typically end up talking about efficiency as if it's a good, a, a always good. More efficiency is always better. And that's never actually true. More efficiency always has a cost. Now, you know, sometimes it's a good trade-off, sometimes it's not, but it has to be evaluated in each particular decision. And so, dot, 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 uh, um, the T2 tile project itself is an idea that, you know, if we're giving up on deterministic execution, uh, uh, what do we get in exchange? Well, you know, hardware determinants, CPU and RAM, step by step, it's done very well for us. We've had a 70 years of computer revolution. Uh, um, and my claim is that what we get is instead a computer that we can grow indefinitely. We can right. make the computer bigger and bigger and bigger. We can add more stuff to it while it's going. You know, stuff might not be working perfectly, but that's okay because we made our system robust first. So it can handle little bits of failing hardware. It can handle stuff coming and going. So the idea is if we give up on hardware determinism, which is a big ask, and that's why so far very few people except the young and the crazy that are willing to uh, embrace these completely wild ideas uh, are really can can really get their brains around it because giving up on hardware is just too hard for most computer people. But in exchange, we get this idea of indefinite scalability, a computer that we can make bigger and bigger and bigger. How do we do that? We do it by uh, building a tile, something that you can plug together with more and more copies of itself until the cows come home, until you run out of real estate, power, cooling, or money you can make the machine bigger. And, you know, I imagine in the science fiction future, uh, there will be, you know, little grains of sand, little tiny things that you just pack them together and there are all these tiny little tiles of computing that get along with each other and figure out how to make a bigger machine. But I said, hey, in the meantime, let's just build it. Let's just go ahead and figure out a way uh, to demonstrate this idea of indefinite scalability. And that's what the T2 Tile Project is trying to do. That that's so cool. I as a, as I've, I've dive uh, dove into the T two tile project and uh, in your work, it crosses over with a lot of other interests that I have. I I'm also I don't have a background in security as a profession, but I in, interact with security thinking a lot um, as a platform engineer. We all do. Um, but I also have an interest in physics. Uh, it's just like a personal lifelong interest I've had, and it it seems that. A lot of the ideas in the robustness first approach and sort of the T2 tile project is plays with these ideas of like locality, right? This idea that um, there's this locally consistent uh, functionality and that, uh, you know, the universe doesn't have to coordinate its universeness, right? That, that, that some local part of the system uh, functions. And, and I think there's a beauty to that that seems to cross over with, with what you're doing with T2 tile. And um, I would, if if that's an inspiration, or if you go into that uh, area of study, I'd I'd love to hear more um, about your thinking. So hang on. So 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 you're saying so you're you're like a, a platform engineer, uh, you know, in our traditional information yeah. technology society. From my point yeah. of view, yeah, in sure. our traditional society, uh, um, and you're saying that in there you see the importance of locality uh -huh. and. So is that what uh, you're no, saying? No, or, you're or right. That, I, no, that was over in no, physics. No, I, I meant in physics. Uh, I guess what I, what I see is a 
to 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 tie those two things together, I guess is um I run up against the efficiency first folks a lot. Um, right? I'm sure. I'm, I'm deploying code that runs in these uh, data centers, or in my case, cloud computing. Um, but of course, the reality right. is we are building distributed systems that are, uh, you know, having to do error correction all the time, right? Like the, the best systems that we're having, at least if you look outside of the nodes and how they communicate and the things that are going on, the best software that we're writing actually has some of these principles of robustness there, right? At least that they're trying to reconcile yes. some piece of something that they have no control over, but they're interacting with the world, right? Uh, so distributed system software has to handle errors much more than traditional CPU right. and RAM host-based computing. Yes. Right. Right. Um, and and, and uh, recently I took actually a network uh, networking class uh, and, you know, was my first interaction with uh, network-based algorithms and this idea of how we get consistency when the state of the system can't be communicated, right? Like we, we just have to understand right. these are emergent properties. Um, and so your area of study has been interesting to me because you take this idea all the way down to foundational or your first principles, I should say, um, of like, well, Hey, what if we did this from square one? And, um, and so right. I was, I was curious, uh, what influence in, uh, did has physics or you know the thinking around physics uh, had on on your on your modeling? Okay, um, sure. And again, this has sort of evolved over the years. Um, but before I encountered digital computers as a kid, I was always trying to make little robots, little machines, little things that would do something by themselves. It would, would roll down the hall and knock over a block or, or, or something, anything. It didn't really matter as long as I had never done it before. Uh, um, and I became acutely aware of the limitations of physics, uh, uh, that it would never work. There was always friction. It wasn't strong enough. It wouldn't actually knock the thing over. It would get there, but then it would make a turn and miss, whatever it is. And when I got to encounter digital computers for the first time in high school, it was like, oh my God, this is so easy. Step by step by step, you can make as many steps as you want. They're all perfect. And I didn't come back to that for decades to say, how did that happen? How did we get from the physics of friction and noise and all of that crap to this perfect, reliable step by step for billions and billions of steps? And so it was only then when I looked into it that it was like, yeah, see, I never really thought about it, but digital circuitry is unbelievably redundant. Uh, the whole idea of a digital circuit is instead of carrying an electrical voltage, which might have, you know, a thousand different detectable values, we use an entire wire to hold one bit. And we put amplifiers all over the place. So even if that bit drops a little bit from one or a little bit up from zero, we cram it back to one and zero all the time. So digital hardware is in fact this unbelievable act of redundancy. Uh, to make the the perfect little world of software that we live in possible. And it isn't really 100% guaranteed. There's always an asterisk. If you run the program long enough, or if you make the memory big enough, or if you cook it with a laser or a hairdryer or something, errors will start happening because physics is physics. Uh, uh, like that. So the thought was... Maybe the idea of putting all of the redundancy inside the hardware level and letting the software level just live in this prima donna perfection universe of square bits, mathematical logic, is not the best way to go. And if we're going to give up on that, which is what the point of Robust Burst is, then we have to admit that physics is going to impact software. Right. We're going to have to admit that things like running out of power. We're going to have to admit that things like locality, uh, the things like how much memory do you actually need and how long do you need it? Because the longer you expect something to maintain itself, the more likely it is something's going to go wrong. So that's the way I imagine physics comes into it. We, 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 we put ourselves off into this completely abstracted universe of mathematics and logic but that was an IOU. There was a, a, a time bomb attached to that. And computer security is one easy way of seeing what the cost of it was. Yeah, that 
that um one of my favorite uh books i read recently was a, a book called the science of can and can't uh and it talks a lot about thinking in counterfactuals right so the universe has all these capabilities that can be done um and we ask a lot of questions uh of what the our understanding of the existing system but thinking the opposite direction of what it can't do seems to, I, I again i liked these ideas because when I see good security researchers, they think this way, right? They think of what are the surprising ways that I can use a system. Right. Um, and right. it's, this is also what robust first computing seems like it is to me, is this idea of like, hey, instead of hoping that it doesn't happen, what if we plan for this breakdown to happen from day one, right? Like inevitably and yes. in, in, in yes. optimize for that, right? <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. And and that's that's really the whole idea. The the thing is, it's like watch out for that first step. That that once you decide to say, well, what if suppose we engineered for that? Suppose we engineered for errors that might happen anywhere at any time, ah, like that. And it's like, well, then, you know, what does that even mean? And the thing that I came to was what it means is instead of doing something once and expecting it to remain uh, perfect forever. Uh, we need, so like we do in regular computing, we compute the maximum value of the loop once at the beginning, and then we assume that we can loop that many times forever, uh, that what we need to do is re-engineer stuff so that we are constantly rebuilding it. We are constantly rebuilding it, even if it's fine. We don't have to wait for an error. In fact, we shouldn't wait for an error because that would mean we'd have to characterize the errors that we're waiting right. for. But if instead we just say, like living systems, that we are going to tear down the cells in your body and replace them with new cells on a regular basis, depending on engineering concerns in each kind of tissue in our right. bodies, uh, then we're much better off than ass assuming we can just make a finger cell once and then, you know, we'll, it'll work forever or until we have right. to go fix yeah, it. Yeah, our, our bodies are making mistakes all the time, right? And it's the it's the it's because of the numbers of cells that it, we overcome the 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 problems that we we create for ourselves. The I I would say that almost everything that happens inside us is massively redundant. Right. Uh, that there, you know, if one cell dies, there's zillions of other cells right there that can do it or in fact that could split and heal up the gap and and rebuild the thing. Because we've had to produce ourselves from an egg and a sperm. Uh, uh, and so therefore, and we are constantly reproducing ourselves within the limits of our particular species that has some abilities for regrowth and healing and other abilities that we can't recover from. Those are engineering decisions for each living system to make. Uh -huh. So yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that to me, that's what ties this whole robust first T2 tile, all that stuff to living systems, to this idea of living computation and artificial life, which is a big area that I've worked that's, in. That's that's amazing. Um, so th maybe this is a bit of a layup and maybe you've uh, talked about this already, but I wanted to have it in a clear question, which is what's a piece of conventional wisdom that you've bet against? Efficiency is always yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, uh, put all your eggs in one basket and watch the basket very closely. Huh? Um, and could probably think of more, uh, uh, but you get the that, idea. Yeah, that 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 is uh, a great summation. Um, the the efficiency is always good. It it seems like we also have this in in our society in general. Whether this is sort of you know distributed systems versus global economic systems, and I think maybe. That's an interesting way of thinking about the creaky aspects of this, right? Like I remember during the pandemic, there was that ship that got stuck in that one shipping lane. Right, right, um, in, in the Suez or right, whatever. Right, which was a very efficient uh -uh. way of getting things from one place to the other. <laughs> uh, also a very efficient way to stop things from getting from one place exactly. to another. Uh, 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 yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a, a great example that uh, a canal between two gigantic oceans is a point of extreme leverage uh, where a tiny thing there, uh, uh, like a small amount of water, can move a zillion ton tanker from one ocean to another. Or on the other side, 
a single tanker can block the movement of all tankers from one side to the other for days and days and days like that. And, you know, the idea, my idea is that, you know, it's really important to think about where are the high leverage spots of a system. And, you know, one example of that is people talking about single points of failure. But that's just a special case uh, of an extremely high leverage point in the system that if you fuck with this, the whole thing stops. But it's a much more general thing where there's a bunch of stuff where you can punch this stuff out. It doesn't matter. It'll just regrow. You push this, you're going to do some permanent damage. You push this, the whole thing's going to die. Uh-uh, like that. And the people who are touting efficiency, if you look under the hood, they are always increasing the leverage somewhere. Right. Because, in fact, that's how they're getting the efficiency. They're, they're cutting out all these redundant checks, which they're calling waste, and saying, all we need to do is say, if the number's greater than zero, then drop the bomb or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, um, and somehow it's up to the actual grown-ups in the room to say, well, no, <laughs> you can't do that. Because what you're going to put downstream of this decision is too consequential. Uh, to just assume that this, uh, you know, the, the more is at risk as a result of the decision, the more that decision has got to be robust. Right. Yeah, that, that's an interesting idea, too, because it also puts a lot of, there's a lot of limitations uh, unintentionally from the decision maker, right? The decision maker is actually saying all of these other redundant pieces of the system are not needed. And there's no possible way of understanding. They're not needed for their purpose. Right. Yeah. And yeah, it, absolutely. And, you know, and a typical example of that is, is social media, you know, like Facebook, that sort of thing. Uh, Facebook doesn't want anybody in between the Facebook user and the Facebook servers. They don't want, you know, your local church. I mean, yeah, they'll, they'll allow your church to have a group inside Facebook, but the group only exists by Facebook's, you know, largesse, you know, that kind of thing. So that's an example where... Facebook wants to leverage the individual users to have complete control over their attention because having the lever <laughs> attention of a billion eyeballs uh, uh, is worth a lot of money. Uh, uh, unfortunately, yeah. it's usually worth a lot of money to people that couldn't get those eyeballs without money. So it, the fact that we're constantly seeing all these uh, social networks taking money to do bad things is no freaking surprise. Yeah. Um, but that's an example of it, that, that, uh, that they're saying, oh, it's just efficient to have everybody talk to Facebook servers. That way, you know, you can talk to anybody you want. And there's a zillion ways to, to make feature checklists out of that. But the dark underside of it is, is that the whole thing now lives or dies on, on Facebook and the whole thing now lives or dies on Mark Zuckerberg's and all the other people in charge, their whims for how the algorithm should selectively decide what to amplify. Yeah, that that's that's interesting. I I hadn't thought of it that way, be, because again, you know, we look at the internet, which is on one level a, a beautiful way for yep. lots of folks to participate uh, in an equal way. But if you look at modern even internet infrastructure, what the top five most popular websites are most of the DNS requests that are happening on the internet, and but DNS is this beautiful distributed database that doesn't need centralization or these other things. And we've, we've built these, you know, well, it, it is, it is centralized, yes. but the, it's central is the central is center is redundant. Right. Well, you're federated, uh, uh, I should like say, that. uh, federated system. Yeah. Uh, it is centralized. Uh, the, what's interesting too, though, is that, uh, to be able to serve, you know, youtube.com or facebook.com is, uh, an, an amazing engineering feat to get, you know, the whole internet to be able to funnel in <laughs> to um, a very small subset of the internet. So that, yeah. Sure, right. Although, you know, at, at one level, that amazing engineering task was performed by IP, uh, the, the internet protocol, uh, uh, like that. That's what made all to all, in principle, uh, possible. And then DNS is a refinement on that. And then certainly as you're talking about, yeah, just saying all to all doesn't really reflect the reality of a billion to one. Right. Right. Oh, uh, your your Facebook servers uh, take, you know, the entire Niagara Falls worth of water to cool them off in order to handle a billion people coming in at once. Uh, but they do it. And that is an amazing engineering feat. Um, 
but the morality of it might be some question. Right. Uh-uh. right. Oh yeah, that's that's so fascinating. It's interesting how these patterns emerge. Uh, I guess almost in any complex system, right? That there's anything that has some sort of component, uh, like atomic component, and how we're thinking about it. You, it seems like we're always playing with this relationship between robustness and efficiency uh, when when we start designing sure. systems. Yeah, and I just want to make room for robustness at the table instead of it just being a bullshit feature checklist Interesting. Uh, that gets added on at the end. Uh-uh, like that, because people talk about efficiency all day long and they don't want to admit the cost of that discussion. They don't want to admit the cost of yeah, what they're that, doing. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I, I, uh, seeing it framed that way is really helpful. Um, okay, so there's a lot of this great thought that you've had, but you've also, you're an individual contributor and you've been working on the hardware and the software stack for this project. Um, and it's been an, a Herculean effort, just like watching you evolve these ideas over the years. I, I'm very curious as, as somebody who has side projects and, and does these other things and um, what's a perfect day for you? Like if, if you woke up one morning and then you finished the end of the day and you were like, this, this is how I wish I functioned every day. Um, what's, what's a day like that working on uh-huh. T2 like? I have to push back on the question a okay. little bit and say that my only real answer is uh, – if, if at the end of the day, I'm still alive, it's a perfect day, uh-uh, like that. And, you know, everything else is a matter of degree. Um, the T2 Tile project, because it has had so many different aspects from uh, hardware to software to architectural design to kernel design and kernel modules, everything, uh, it feels a lot different. Uh, so, you know, a good day is... Uh, is a good day as far as just the project is concerned is is when I feel like uh, I made some progress because <laughs> uh, a, a lot of days I don't feel like I made that much progress um, and, you know, I was just wasting time on social media or, you know, doom scrolling something or whatever it is or playing solitaire. And, it you know, it's usually the case that there was some design decision in what I was officially supposed to do that I didn't like. And I didn't want to do it, but I was just being a child about it instead of just directly admitting that I don't like this idea and trying to come up with some other things. I was just playing solitaire for an hour or whatever it is. And then, well, it's still there. You know, all right, maybe I'll think about it this time. And uh, so a good day is when a design decision works out, when something works out, or when a surprising bug is found, you know, and there's any normal good thing. Is all there is, and perfection eh, not achievable uh-uh, like that. You know, if if I if I was gonna have a really good day, uh, it would be you know wake up, uh, putter around a little bit, have my first cup of coffee, uh, be excited to hack on something that I had been hacking on the night before, so that I could just jump right back into it, uh, work on it, get a. a get to be able to check off a bunch off of my current to-do list saying, okay, hey, that's working, that's working. Have something working even better than I expected it to and then saying, oh, yeah, that's actually a better idea than I thought. And then going and having a cocktail and a delicious dinner and watching TV with my wife and then going to sleep. Mwah, perfect Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> um, okay. So I, I know that there's been a lot of steps and there's a lot of iterations of, with the, the hardware um, what's the yeah. current, what are you most excited about with the current thinking that you have with, with, um, with the hardware aspect? Um, well, you know, the, the hardware itself, uh, of the tiles has been stable for quite some time now. And what, uh, is happening is I'm leaving simulations running on the matrix, on the, the T2 matrix, which is currently 76 tiles. Uh, although one of the goals for the, 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 the T2 brain challenge that we're in the middle of right now uh, is to expand the, the, the matrix a little bigger. Uh, um, so they're running for weeks on end, 24-7. Uh, um, and occasionally things happen, uh, like tiles screw up or the screen just goes white or, or something like that. 
And so I end up trying to actually replace tiles out of the middle of it without rebooting the rest of the matrix and things like that. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, you know, because the software could be better. The software could be more robust. The software could handle disruptions better than it does. I tried in some cases, but it's hard. And then this latest thing is because I'm trying to take that entire matrix and let it be a model of a, a brain or a cognitive system rather than an entire simulated uh, universe uh, like the things that these, you know, AI people pretend we're living in, you know, that kind of stuff. Now the idea is just take that whole thing and imagine that's a little teeny patch of brain surface and connect it to an external reality of some sort. Uh, so that's what I'm working on now. And that's been, you know, uh, 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 going back to hardware again. And in fact, I've got it running, running right here. But um, so that's a little teeny bit of hardware to make a new communication method, essentially to be a spine to connect to some of the tiles in the matrix and then produce, connect to an outside world, which in this case is just going to be a laptop running a 3D physics simulation. And the outside world is just going to be the little world inside this 3D physics simulation. But senses from that world are going to go up the spine and hit the matrix, and it's going to do its brainy computing, whatever it is that remains to be figured out. And then the, its motor commands, its decisions about what to do, are going to come back down the spine, and we're going to deploy them into the little 3D simulated physics world and then watch and see what happens. So that's the latest. And I was happy to actually have a little bit of hardware that I could work on. Yeah, that that's awesome. Um. With all of this iteration and the work that you've been doing, I'd love to know if you could tell me some about something that you did that worked out, but not for the reason you thought it would. Uh, give me a minute to put yeah. that in the search filter and see what pops up. Uh, um, things that worked out. Well, um, you know, one of the things that's true about computers in general for me, uh, or at least traditional computers, uh, is that I always viewed them as a game of solitaire that I always win, eventually, uh, uh, like that. And the harder it is to find a bug, that's just because my skills aren't as good or the bug is particularly uh, hard or whatever it was. Uh, um, and... Well, we'll put it this way. Here, You know, one example was... Uh, that I had stuff that was running weirdly. Uh, um, and, well, see, I don't know. Uh, can we can we go on to another one and then let me be reminded yeah. by that, uh, about that later, because I don't, I don't have a good one. I mean, I could give you one uh, not from the T2 Tile project. I could give you things from artificial life research way back in history, because I've already written about those, but they don't feel oh, okay. fresh. Um, yeah, no, either, either th th that's fine. Um, so let me think, tell me, um, and this could be anywhere from your career, uh, from academia or personal, what, tell me the work that you, some of the work that you're most proud of. Okay. Uh, um, well, the Boltzmann machine, uh, learning algorithm, uh, uh, was not my work. It was my professor's work when I was a graduate student. But I did most of the implementation of the very first simulators. I gathered the data. I uh, I remember uh, sitting in my advisor's office uh, when the software was first starting to run. And so this is learning. This is machine learning in the 1980s. Uh, um, and we were had given it some particular little problem. I don't know if it was the XOR problem or, or something even simpler than that. Um, but the simulation was running and doing all the stuff, and I had gotten enough of the bugs out that it seemed believable. And every so often, every epoch, it would print out the value of the error that it had observed on the previous epoch. And we wanted that number in principle to get smaller. Uh, um, and we were just sitting there, my advisor and I, staring at this thing. And each time a number came up, he would make, you know, make a graph on the board, on the whiteboard, uh, well, on the chalkboard. And it was going down, it was going down, we were getting excited. And then it went up, oh, and then it went down, and then it went down again. 
uh-uh, like that. And that was super exciting. And I mean, that was the earliest stuff of getting this particular kind of machine learning. There had been plenty of machine learning stuff that was done before this. But one, this particular thing with this particular approach and then watching that start to work uh, was, was pretty super great. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a little bit of a, a disadvantage. It's like being a child star in the sense that the Boltzmann machine paper is the paper of my entire career that has the most citations. And so it's kind of a drag to, you know, you sort of peaked in high school, you know, one of those things. Uh, I peaked in Little League and it's been downhill ever since. Uh, um, but I still feel completely happy about that. I, uh, I feel like it was a good, solid piece of work and that was great and so forth. So that's one. That, that's cool. And for the audience who may not know what a Boltzmann machine is, what's a, what's a basic understanding that folks might want to have? Sure. Uh, um, so this is neural networks. I mean, this is the stuff that everybody is blah, 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 chat GPT is the great, 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 great grandson of this area of research, not of this specific algorithm. Uh, um, so the big question, one of the big questions in the 80s, uh, for those few people who were still doing learning at the time, uh, was, you know, if, if uh, problems that you're working on are super simple, like every input either contributes to a yes or a no, then any simple algorithm could do it. That was long understood. But if you had a case where the particular inputs, maybe they were contributing to a yes answer if they were in this combination, but if they were in this other combination, they were contributing to a no answer, nobody had been able to figure out a systematic way to learn that. And that had put the freeze on the field for like 20 years from the late 50s until the 70s and 80s. Uh, and the Boltzmann machine was a particular idea uh, about how to get around that problem, to actually be able to learn concepts that weren't so direct, that it was from the input directly supports an output. And the way to do that was to create what we called hidden units, uh, which is now a completely standard term. Um, so instead of just having inputs and outputs, you have these hidden units in between uh, uh, that could create higher order concepts. I mean, using the term concept very loosely. And the machine, the Boltzmann machine learning algorithm was a particular way of doing it. And the way it worked was uh, you'd, you'd have this network and you'd, you'd just let it rattle. The Boltzmann machine was random. So even if you didn't give it any new input at all, if you just let it do what it wanted to do, the things would be flickering on and off and all this stuff. And you measure how often each of the units was on together while it's doing that. And then you start feeding an input. You say, when you see this, you should say that. When you see this, you should say that. And you let it rattle around under those conditions. And you get another set of statistics that when the, we're feeding input and output, then the statistics are like this. And when you just let it daydream, when you just let it sleep, when you let it do whatever it wants with no input or output constraint, it does this. And then if you take the difference in those two distributions, there's a way that you can figure out how to change the weights in the network to make the distribution of its sleep activity more like the distribution of its waking activity. And that was the Boltzmann machine learning algorithm. And it was kind of the first algorithm that handled a certain particular kind of little problem in a reasonably understandably, mathematically understandable way that also worked as an implementation. It also worked in simulation. That's really cool. Your work in that, in that area, what did that end up unlocking for you um, career-wise? Like, what did you end up working on next because of that? Well, so when I, you know, I, I enjoyed graduate school a lot. And uh, I uh, was really not that interested in graduating and, and going out in the real world. Uh, but after I'd been uh, in graduate school for seven years, something like that, uh, my advisor told me that, uh, you know, I'm not funding you after next February. And I said, okay, my, my dissertation will be done next February. Uh, and it was, and I went out uh, on the job market there. And uh, I got a job offer from uh, Bellcor, this, you know, research lab that was part of the old Bell Labs that when AT&T, which used to be a monopoly on telephones, when it got split up, Bell Labs was, was its laboratories. Bell Labs got split up too. 
and the part that went with the local phone companies was called Bellcore, and the part that stayed with AT&T, the long-distance company, was called Bell Labs. And I got a job offer from a guy, a group manager at Bellcor, uh, and because he liked my dissertation, <laughs> I guess. Uh, um, and my job description was to work on problems of my own choosing. Hey, that's uh, awesome. Uh, so I did. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Uh, um, and I stayed. I stayed at Bellcor for about seven years, uh, uh, and it was good for about five years. Uh, uh, and then, uh, Belcor was, was all going in the dumper, uh, at that point. And eventually I went off to academia. Fascinating. That's great. And has, um, has hardware always played a role in the type of work that you're doing or, or have you spent parts of your career, um, all in the mostly research and software end of. Yeah, no, I mean, I. As I even say in the the T Tuesday updates to this day, I am software guy lost in hardware right. land. Uh, uh, I only started doing hardware out of necessity, um, and you know if I looked at other folks, uh, other computer science faculty say, who were better at being computer science faculty than I am, they would have been able they they're able to get grants. Uh, to do stuff, which means that they, they can then get graduate students to do stuff, and they could get and they get graduate students to do hardware stuff for them, like you know, build drones, copters with special properties, build swarms of robots, and stuff like that, uh, so that other people in the group and the factory themselves can think more at the software level. But you know, for multiple reasons, I was not that good in academic faculty. I wasn't that good at grantsmanship. I wasn't that good at telling funders what they wanted to hear. Because uh, I would only tell them what I was thinking about, you know, that exact week, that exact oh. month. And it was like, you know, this guy's a nut job. Uh, um, and so that's why I just ended up saying, well, fuck it. I'm just going to do it myself. Uh, uh, so I'd always been terrified of hardware because it threw me back to that beginning of my life when I was a kid before I found digital computers where I was building machines with little motors and batteries and fans and stuff like that that never actually worked. And by saying, I'm going to do hardware now, was my attempt to re-own re that space, you know, the re-own the space of making stuff out of physics instead of making stuff That's out of bits. Cool. And, you know, it's, it's been fun because you get to do it, you get to climb a learning curve and that's what's fun. Yeah. Oh, I, um, so I have a, uh, I have an affinity for contrarians and for unconventional thinking. And so that, uh, is really, um, I find it fascinating. It might not have always been a fun personal experience to have to butt up against that, but I, I, I do. I am curious. Um, what influence did you feel like you were able to have on your students uh, when you were teaching? Because I would imagine that these ideas would have come with you to the the classroom. Sure. Um, so, if I taught one course more than others, it was large. Uh, it was the third course in programming, the systems programming course, that in fact, the way I taught it, it was kind of halfway towards a sort of capstone design class, although eventually uh, we changed the curriculum and there was an explicit software engineering capstone class. But this was where we kind of separated the kids from the grown-ups uh, as far as being serious about programming. And uh, I felt like my goal was to get people to get it. Uh, um, and, you know, because when you start learning programming, it's really hard and it's so nitpicky and all these fussy little stupid things that we ask large language models to do for us now. Uh, um, they, they all have to be absolutely right or you just get a horrible punishment, you know, over and over and over again. Um, but my position as a teacher, I mean, I would never say this to the students, but what I was actually trying to convey to them was an attitude of the hacker, uh, an attitude of having the knowledge, the competence, and the confidence that you knew how to make this machine jump the way you wanted it. And if you didn't know how, you knew how to find out how like that. And that made you a member of the club that I was talking about before, where it's a game of solitaire that you always win uh, uh, like that. You, you can't be defeated by a programming thing 
except if you give up, except if, if you're, if you have, you know, your moral fiber isn't there. And so I tried to show up in class. I tried to make up, uh, new assignments each semester, or at least variations on old assignments so that one couldn't just steal the project from before, but then mostly try to get excited about stuff. Mostly try to get excited about how cool this is. And then immediately turn around and say, of course, it has these limitations, but there's this other thing that's cool, too, uh, uh, like that. And, you know, I've gotten feedback from students over the years that, you know, thought that was worthwhile, uh, uh, thought they learned a lot about programming. So that's on the one hand, that's, that's the big official class. But when I got to teach research seminars, you know, more stuff about my own work, I had a class called the Artificial Life Research Studio that I taught two or three times, I'm not sure, maybe four. Uh, um, that was explicitly about all this stuff. And in the later iterations of the Artificial Life Research Studio, we used the movable feast machine simulator, the software that was building. We wrote code in Ulam, the language that developed for the T2 tile project. All of that stuff was absolutely in the class. People were writing final projects uh, in Ulam to run on the movable feast machine simulator, MFMS, uh, and you can find uh, videos on YouTube to this day that, that them, you know, presenting their final projects and that stuff. So for that, it was absolutely literal. Uh, and I did get lots of useful feedback, lots of uh, improvements that came out of having that kind of field testing at that level. That's fascinating. And we'll, um, we'll share some links to that in the show notes, uh, just because I think that would be really, th those helped me a lot when I, when I stumbled upon those to, to understand the the reasoning behind some of this uh it, and it, it again it's beautiful and it's like emergence uh the, what comes out of it well certainly one thing that i was relatively recent for me is this idea of top-down engineering versus bottom-up engineering and you know it's it's a sort of an obvious thing to say you take top-down bottom-up you put it with cooking you put it with you know whatever you put it with engineering but uh, the idea is, you know, from top-down engineering, you start with a problem and figure out gradually how to implement it in stuff that you can actually build. Bottom-up engineering, instead, you start with the world that you have and try to make it do useful things that you might be able to provide, uh, put together and make more complex useful things like that. And they are both absolutely legitimate engineering techniques. I mean, what I say, what I would say in the software engineering class is that the purpose of computing is to connect physics to money. Yeah. Um, and you have these layers of hardware, software, user experience. Please type in your credit card now uh, uh, at the top of the stack and so forth. And that has to produce enough money to pay for that entire level of machinery all the way back down to the physics. Uh, um, and so you can do that. You can start at the end user. You say, okay, how could I get someone to give me the credit card? Uh, uh, or you can start all the way at the bottom at how can I make sil silicon uh, uh, go faster with less heat, or how can I make gallium arsenide, or whatever it is, and then you can climb your way back up. So everything that we're doing in the T2 tile project, the robust first, the indefinite scalability, that is bottom-up engineering. We're trying to say, how can you start with physics, which has a number of restrictions, like the speed of light. You can only do things inside your light cone. So if you want to do it fast, it has to be local as we already talked about. Uh, um, and so as a result, how can you do something useful in this amount of space? And then how could you do something a little bit bigger, a little bit slower in this amount of space? And we're trying to provide a palette. We're trying to provide basic things equivalent to like, you know, NAND gates and registers and the basic ingredients of deterministic computing, but stuff that will survive in this robust first space where it has to constantly be reconstructing itself and constantly checking, are you still there? Are you still there? Are you still there? Uh, uh, all of that. And then all of that is, well, I hope the goal is to produce a, a presentation level, a robust abstraction layer where people could again, start to be more software only ish. Uh, uh, but now they would be writing in terms of these these teams of collaborative stuff, these teams of what I would call living, uh, uh, self-regulating, self-healing systems that we, you know, put a rang just put a little sprinkling on top to say, and perhaps your credit card number could go here. 
uh, like that, you know, whatever That's it is. That's really cool. Um, earlier you mentioned uh, sort of your, you know, your your ideas and, and how maybe it was hard to get research dollars. I, I'm curious about when you would introduce these ideas to other faculty members or other peers in your in your field, what pushback have you gotten as far as your focus on robust first? Um, like what are what are their counter arguments? Usually it's deafening silence. Uh, um that uh, uh Sometimes, depending, you know, so uh, all the way back in 2013, so over a decade ago, uh, um, I, I spent a year traveling around the country giving talks, trying this material out and so forth, uh, and trying to improve it and so forth. And, and I went to, to Washington and tried to talk to funding agencies about it and so forth. And the problem was, is I didn't really understand how the world worked at that point. I should have I should have done a couple of years and then gone to Washington to talk to the funding people because I would be able to have made a much better case. Uh, uh, but I didn't. I just you know damn the torpedoes. You know you're supposed to be. Able, I'm just going to go tell them this is the greatest thing since whatever. They're going to be very nice next, uh, uh, like that. Uh, um, and you know usually I would give these talks. I would get invited to a university because there was somebody on the faculty there who was sympathetic, who who I knew or whatever. And so they would get me to come give a talk, and I would give it. And they would usually go okay, but they would struggle to come up with relevant comments uh, uh, like, because I was changing everything. Uh, and, and so at best they could say, you know, how come this isn't just the Internet uh, when I would talk about robustness and distributed systems and so on. And I would have to say, well, in some ways it is, but in other ways it's very much not and so on. Uh, um so I think a traditional computer science mostly uh, has trouble even knowing where to begin with this. Um, I did have a uh, 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 a traditional computer science, uh, well, mathematician, theorist type, uh, wrote a review in computing reviews of one of my papers uh, from the A-Life thing, one of the papers about Ulam, and he really hated it. Uh, and talked about how it was so, you know, just a hacky mishmash of uh, incoherent stuff as opposed to the hyper-alpha lambda some particular thing, his thing, uh, the thing that he thought was great, which was a mathematical abstract thing like that. And that's what should be called ulam, and that's what, rah, 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 you know, oh, wow. like that and so on. And, you know, I, I my, my feelings were hurt a little bit. Uh, um because I thought it was unfair. I mean, I thought I thought the attack was unfair. But now I have to say that one of the good things about having, you know, been doing the T2 Tile project for five years on YouTube uh, is, you know, every so often I get reply guys and and they're saying snarky things and so forth. And so I had to decide how to react to them, whether to react to them at all and so on and so forth. And... I've learned a lot of uh, 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 better, and uh, because I have found people who get it to some degree and like it and support it, uh, I have a little more confidence uh, uh, like that. So, in particular, I don't have to fight back, or at least typically, I don't have to fight back when somebody expresses their derision that this is so silly or this was all done before. Uh, uh, and I'm completely ignorant for not knowing about Smith and Jones 1992 or whatever it happens to be. Um, so that's good. I, I'm not sure if that's answering the no, question. This is, I feel no, this like is, wondered, this what, is what do, phenomenal because I, I, this is really helpful on, on, on my side. It's, I'd always find it fascinating when people who disagree feel like they have to go in and be nasty. Like, I don't understand that one. Like you can also just disagree. <laughs> Well, yeah. Um, when people are being partisans, uh, they view their job as to eradicate the other party, uh, the, the partisans that they are opposed to. Uh, um, that's not the only way to be. You don't have to be a partisan. You, you can rise up above it and say, well, you know, uh, but then, then you have the risk that both sides of the partisans say, oh, you're just saying there's very good people on each side. 
uh, uh, like that, and, and that doesn't seem very satisfying either. So you have to actually struggle to figure out how to frame whatever the partisans are fighting over uh, uh, in a way that perhaps there could be a way forward. And, you know, if somebody says something mean to me and I feel hurt, and my first reaction is to snap back with, you know, so's your mother or, or whatever it is, uh, um, then they're trying to trap me into being a partisan uh, for right. myself. And if I fight back, then they're ready to fight. They're, they've got, you know, all kinds of experience right. with it. Uh, but if I can lay back long enough to say, you know, but this is, I'm actually not partisan about that. There's a lot of senses in which you're right. My videos really do suck. You know, <laughs> they would be so much better if I was willing to, like, uh, edit them. Rather than just do them live uh, uh, and leave the entire thing up, you know. And so then I've long since discovered that as long as I can find that middle ground and, and approach it with good spirit, it tends to disarm most of the critics, the reply guys, the people that come in as partisans like that. And I think that's the best I can yeah, do. That, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so this leads me to another question, uh, especially with your your YouTube channel. What what made you decide to start building in public like this and using YouTube? Uh, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, what I said in the opening episode of the T2 Tile Project on YouTube was I had, I had just retired. I had just retired from academia, and I was afraid that I was just going to turn into a veg and, and, and stare at the TV all day long, whatever. Um, and so I decided to create this podcast uh, podcast this this uh, youtube weekly update the t tuesday updates um to keep myself from doing that to, to to try to make myself put on the record and at that time there was a uh another youtube channel called uh, uh winter garden wednesdays winter Gatan wednesdays a guy that was building this crazy marble yes. machine to make music fan, uh, uh that i that i used to follow uh, um, and so I was just inspired by that. Oh, he's doing Winter Gatan Wednesdays. I'll do Tea Tuesday Tuesdays. Uh, uh, and that oh, was as far as so it cool. went. Uh, um, I didn't realize. On the other hand, yeah. even, well, one last bit, that even when I was a kid, uh, like, you know, uh, high school, junior high school, uh, I used to make movies with Super 8 cameras and stop motion and claymation and uh, friends running down the street and pretending to kill each other and all that kind of stuff. So I've always been trying to make stuff, make creations to present. And, you know, these kids these days, you guys, you know, you have no idea how good you have it. You know, you sync sound, you just get it off of your phone. Give me a break. Uh, you know, I would kill for sync sound when I was a kid. Uh, um, anyway, uh, uh, so in that sense, coming to YouTube was sort of a coming home or a sort of a, you know, it was that's destiny. Cool. No, that's great. I, uh. I didn't realize that there, I know that you used some of Winter Garden's uh, free music that he shares, but I didn't realize. Right. Uh, absolutely. I didn't realize the, uh, the inspiration cross pollination there. Yes. Um, I was a Patreon supporter of that for years and um, my, my, my daughter's cool. eight years old, but when she was little, you know, when he made the first marble machine video, we would watch that when she was little. And then we right. watched him make the marble machine X. And of course now he's on this like, latest iteration uh um yeah i've I've lost the touch a little bit i have no to admit. no no he stopped uh, making videos um, for a while i think now it's mostly getting down yeah, to yeah. Design. it's design yeah, it's first principles and you know this is his obsession which i think is also interesting right once you start once his eyes were opened about needing to get back to the fundamentals the journey has been fascinating there too um oh well that's good uh, yeah. that's good i mean you know to me Growing up, I was a pinball mm. addict, and I, I loved playing pinball. I was quite good at it. Um, and looking at his machines, looking at his marble machines, to me, they look like he needs pinball technology. And, and they actually solved all of his problems long <laughs> ago, uh, uh, like that, if he was willing to figure them out, uh, uh, like that. And... Uh, but it was more fun uh, for him to just follow his nose and try it and see what goes wrong. And I can't uh, criticize him for that because I'm doing right. the same thing. Now, you know, I, I don't know 
that there's equivalent to an industry out there doing robust first, and I just don't get it yet. I mean, people, reply guys on YouTube like to tell me that, oh, you're just doing cybernetics, oh, you're just doing systems theory, oh, you're just doing uh, general systems engineering, whatever it is. And if I haven't already looked into it, I then have to look into it and, and see, you know, yeah, these, these guys definitely had a good piece of the right. spirit, but they didn't really do much with it. They didn't actually build anything. Right. Uh, uh, so what's the next step? And I'm back That's on interesting. my own. And, and again, it's, this is the other area here, which is the, you know, robustness of ideas, robustness of, uh, of, of perspective uh, and experience is also really important. And so um, one of the things I love about the T2 Tile Project is that you do take this very different view and I learn things from it all the time. And so that's what I appreciate about Great. this existing, right? Great. Um, so, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I, I criticize myself a lot for not making it more introductory, for not making it easier to understand. And I've got well-meaning YouTubers who comment on my videos and their, you know, re recurring comments. I didn't really get it, uh, uh, but I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, something like that. And on the one hand, I feel bad for not making it clear enough that they can get it, but I can't actually take that kind of time right now uh, in, in with everything else, with the number of hours in the day. So I have to hope that there are folks out there, kind of like you were just saying, who can find some value in it, because I'm trying to say things that I believe are really true and are actually important, and are they just kind of come out of what I'm working on at the moment. And that's the only reason they're there. It's not because I wanted to say them separately or whatever. It's just because, okay, now we're working on serial loops and we have to worry deal with errors or, you know, whatever. Uh, um, so I'm glad to hear you say yeah, that. Absolutely. Thank you. So this gets us as we're, uh, we're sort of rounding the final um, turn on this, on this interview. Um, a young person who is now learning to love to learn. Uh, and is introducing themselves to new ideas and maybe wants to get into robust first and best effort computing, where would you recommend that they get started? What books or... Um, or... Well, I, mostly I'm going to recommend doing things, cool. not reading things. That you, you read things in service of doing things. You don't read things just for reading things. Because I have this experience where reading about something makes me less likely to do it. Uh, because now it seems like, oh my God, they do it so well and everything. I'll never be able to do it that well. So I never even start. Um, so what I would think, uh, again, this is just from my particular angle, I wouldn't expect this to apply to everybody who wants to think, learn how to thinking about thinking, um, is to, is to just start writing, just programming stuff in as many different contexts as possible. I would think a typical thing these days would be like Minecraft or, or, or this Roblox, right. or I don't, I don't even know the difference between the two of them, you know. Uh, um, and uh, I would say the funnest thing is try to make something do something by itself. Build something that's supposed to do something by itself and see if you can get it to do it by itself. A and don't be necessarily limited to computers. Uh, uh, actually build physical things with a battery or with a wind-up. Uh, rubber band, uh, uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, um, and the the point is, is you set them up and knock them down. You say, well, it would be cool to see if I could make a slingshot that would uh, hit a Nerf ball with a pencil and, you know, and say, okay, uh, well, uh, dad says we're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Well, maybe we can do something else with a Nerf, a Nerf bullet and a Nerf ball, whatever. That's to me, making stuff do stuff by itself is just inherently naturally fun. And I, and I did it ever since I was preschool, pre-kindergarten. Uh, um, and it's, it's, I think it's held me in good stead. I think it's an aspect of the fundamental drive of being a living creature. That's, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful idea. Um, okay. Um, we will absolutely share uh, links uh, in the show notes to your YouTube channel and and anything else that you feel would be valuable to the audience. Uh, are there the the last little question here is Are there any uh, any books that you do recommend uh, 
someone read just whether it's on the topic of this or not? Is there any um, inspiring works that you? I I do have one book that pops to mind first. Uh, it's not a really a kid book, but uh, it's kind of an everybody book. Uh, um, and it's called Finite and Infinite Games by a guy named James P. Carse, C-A-R-S-E. Um, and it is about the book that I am the most jealous of having not written of all the books I've wow, ever seen. cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's this tiny little book, uh, and it, it begins with the text. There are at least two kinds of games. One could be called finite, and the other could be called infinite. The purpose of a finite game is to win. The purpose of an infinite game is to continue the play. And it just goes oh. from there. Uh, uh, and to me, that's it, it's a it's a backbone of my life and philosophy and everything. That's cool. Everybody should go get awesome. a copy. Well, on that note, uh, Dave Ackley, this has been amazing. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, sure, Nathan. Thanks so much for asking. Thanks.